to the end of service. So what is it? does that mean I should preach short? No, uh-uh. No, because we're here for the Word of God, right? Yeah, all right, I see that. Yeah, wave those Bibles. That's all right if you brought the Word with you. Or you could, you know, you can wave this too. It's, it's, it's okay. I've got my Bible in multiple places. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. God's Word's right there at our fingertips. It's wonderful. Uh, we've been in God's Word for uh, the past several weeks talking about these uh, binary relationships that appear in the Bible. And our title has been God is Binary. And as I said at the outset, that's just a bit of a play on words because God is spirit. Uh, God, he's not a duality that could ever be binary. God is one. God is one. And that's expressed in the earliest pages of Scripture. Uh, and the, the idea, the proclamation that God is one, that became a, a prayer to the Jewish people, a prayer that they called uh, the Shema Israel. And uh, simply, they, they might have just said Shema, but the title comes from uh, the first two Hebrew words in the prayer, which are Shema Israel. And that means, hear, O Israel. And I just thought I'd share that little prayer with you because it, ta it, it talks about God is one. This is uh, Moses recounting what God had given him and he was given to the people of Israel. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's verses 4 and 5. And it, it begins, Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Well, that's the word of God. That is the word of God, as I said. It was given through Moses to the people. And every good Jew took that to heart. And they memorized that little portion of Scripture and it became a prayer to them morning and evening. Jesus knew it. Jesus touched on it. That second part of Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and 5, verse number 5, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus said that's the greatest commandment. But he also affirmed God is one. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. Hard for us to comprehend, but that's one God. We're not pantheists. We don't worship multiple gods. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The one Lord, the one God created and created all things and created many things that are binary. His word is full of what I've called the binary pairs. And we've talked about a number of them. See them in your Bible. Uh, when, when you come across them, highlight them. We've, we've talked about creation and the created, we, or, or the creator and the creation. We've talked about pride and humility, remembering and forgetting, heaven and hell, and of course, of course, we've touched on 
Male and female, the idea, the idea that male and female are immutable characteristics, that has been torpedoed by the culture, hasn't it? And it's turned this word binary kind of into a cultural lightning rod. If you don't say it the right way, you might be in trouble. To insist male and female, those are immutable characteristics. We just can't change them. That binary is a fact of life. Well, that invites the cultural ridicule. It invites a label of, well, you're a hater. And that's, uh, that's because that's cultural wisdom. And the culture would call us a fool for saying those kinds of things. Last week, Pastor Barry touched on wisdom and foolishness. The Apostle Paul wrote, don't deceive yourselves. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise by the standard of this age or the culture, the standard, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. And Pastor Barry touched on some of the differences between God's wisdom, man's wisdom. Uh, and today, as I just draw this series to a close, I'm going to kind of continue on that theme of wisdom and foolishness, but with another pair. And the pair is truth and lies, or truth and falsehood. God's wisdom is true. Now, whether you like it or not, it's true. You can't redefine truth. True is true. But, but the culture calls it myth. The culture says, well, you're just superstitious. It's superstition. It's fantasy. You know, this, uh, you've got some, you know, guy in the sky that's just a, a fantasy. God is a lie. But it's the culture. It's the culture that's perpetuating what is false and then presenting uh, what's false as true. They just flip things around. And how are things flipped around? Well, you can be whatever you want. You can, you can be whoever you want, whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, you're entitled. You don't need the wisdom of God. You don't need wisdom like we heard last week. You do not need righteousness or godliness or faith, love, endurance. You don't need holiness or purity. You can just be who you want to be. You don't need any of that. See, what's true is called false, and what's false is called true. And that's the culture. And what, what is culture? What is culture? I recently heard the vice president struggling to define culture and she kind of put it this way, that culture is whatever brings you joy. And I don't know, that's, that's kind of a cultural value, I'll say. I don't think that's culture. It's, it's, maybe it's a big part of it, but it's, it's really just one of the, the values of culture. And whatever you want, whatever brings you joy, but culture, culture is the predominant customs and traits and and values and attitudes of a group, of a society. And that's either the predominant values or really what's being driven by those who influence, which we see quite a bit today. 
some of the some of the values certainly we don't ascribe to them, but those who have power, those who uh, have influence, are driving those values. And of course, there are little microcosms of culture. They might be a little different. There's work culture, there's school culture, neighborhood culture, family culture, but all within this greater societal culture. And here in the U.S. in the 21st century, Western, modern societal culture, the values, the attitudes, they have flipped so much of what is true and called it false. And they've flipped what is false and called it true. And the influence that, of that culture, it's very strong. It's very strong. Things like marriage and gender and family, they've all been, they've all been sort of smashed and impressed and redefined. And in many churches, and I know that's not a shock to so many of us, but in many churches, marriage, gender, family, and other things, they're just being redefined. And it continues. It continues. Uh, the Anglican Church, the, the, the Church of England, they began their general synod meetings this past Friday. The meetings are still going on. It's a gathering of all the leaders of, uh, of the Church of England and their meeting in York, England. And on Friday, the meetings began with the uh, presidential address from the Archbishop of York. Now, his message was all about unity. And, and there was... There were some very good points in his message, and I read the entire thing. Uh, he began, though, uh, w- with a, a comment, a side, he, he began, and he made this side comment, I'll say, because he was focusing on unity, taking the Lord's Prayer as, as his foundation. And he made this comment, and again, It wasn't the point of his message. I don't want to mischaracterize him. He didn't focus on this throughout it, but it was was an aside. And this is the comment. He said, this God to whom we pray is Father. And yes, I know the word Father is problematic for those whose experience of earthly fathers has been destructive and abusive. And for all of us, who have labored rather too much from an oppressively patriarchal grip on life. Well, as I said, it wasn't the point of his message to hammer on father is problematic. It was just a brief comment, but that that comment, that comment the archbishop made, it's kind of telling. It's kind of telling. It's kind of saying there's some influence here from the culture being being pushed into the church. Now some, they lauded the, the archbishop. Oh, it's about time. And, and here's a quote from someone who was praising the bishop. The archbishop put his finger on an issue that's really a live issue for Christians and has been for many years. For many years. Father has been problematic for some. But there was a response, there was a response from another member of the Synod, a a canon who said this, is the Archbishop of York saying Jesus was wrong or that Jesus was not pastorally aware 
It seems to be emblematic of the approach of some church leaders to take their cues from culture rather than scripture. I thought that was a great comment. Because it's not just church leaders, but it's throughout the church that many, many are taking their cues from culture rather than from the truth of Scripture. And, And they're siding with lies, siding with lies instead of the truth. But they would tell you, no, 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 listen, we're not. No, we're not. We are not siding with the lies. No, we know better. You know we're smarter now? You know that we are smarter than those people who lived 2,000, 3,000 years ago. I mean, the language of 3,000 years ago, it fit their times. But we know better. We know. We know, as I said earlier, God is one. God is spirit. He's neither male nor female. So why? Why should we insist on gendered language in Scripture? As a matter of fact, the Anglican Church, they began looking at Scripture. Six months ago, they started an initiative to make the language gender neutral. Why? So why? If God's one and God's really not binary, you know, hey, I'm just using it as a play on words. If God's truly not male or female, what is the problem? Why should we even use gendered language? Well, it serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. It presents an order. God has given a masculine pronoun. Jesus came to earth as a man. Not a woman. He's called the son of God. Jesus is called the son of God. He's the son of God, not the daughter of God. He's not, he's not just a generic child of God. And Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as he. And I'll give you one example. John 15, verse 26. Jesus speaking. Jesus said, when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. The archbishop's going to have to change some of this because Jesus, the man, referred to God, his Father, the Father, and the Spirit of truth, he. He will testify about Jesus. Now, just because the culture has become obsessed and uncomfortable with certain pronouns, we can't just transform Jesus into some androgynous being. Uh, We can't uh, say that he's just this generic child who called on his father, mother, parent in heaven and sent the he, she, Holy Spirit. We can't change the truth into a lie just because we don't like the truth or we think we know better. God is presented as masculine. He's presented as father. He's also presented throughout the word of God as husband. And I'm going to give you another example from Isaiah 54. And you can put your finger in Isaiah 54. I'm going to reference a few uh, passages here in Isaiah 54. 
Isaiah, this, this great prophet who had this grand vision, Cameron reminded us, this vision of the, the very throne room of God. And he, uh, he said, woe is me. He felt his, just how insignificant he was before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Almighty. And God used him as an oracle. And in Isaiah 54, we hear the word of God through the prophet. And he's, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, for your maker is your husband. Isaiah 54, 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all earth. God is presented here as a husband. The image of, of the nation of Israel is that of the wife. Because there are meanings associated with husband and wife. There are distinct roles of husband and wife. Now the lying and truth-distorting culture cringes when we speak of roles of man and woman. Oh, you're all, we're all the same, or we can be whoever we want to be, whenever we want to be. They cringe when we say that there's a, a role for a man and a role for a woman. The culture cringes if we say there's roles for a husband and roles for a wife. It's abhorrent to some. But there are distinctions, and God presented himself as husband because there is an order in the biblical depiction of family. Israel was called God, God's wife. The, the church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ. Christ is described as the bridegroom. Another grand vision of heaven was given to John the Apostle, and he described it in the book of Revelation. He heard what sounded like a great multitude. He said, it's like thunder. And this is what he heard. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And then an angel said to John, come, come on, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. These are scriptural words, bride, wife. The lamb is Jesus. And John saw the bride of Jesus. Who was the bride of Jesus? It was the righteous, the righteous who had entered the kingdom of heaven. And it was depicted in John's vision as this enormous city, beautiful, just brilliant beyond description. And coming down from, from God being presented to Jesus the groom, the scripture is full of this. The Archbishop of York is uncomfortable with our father. It's problematic because some had an abusive father. That's true. That's true. Some people have had a bad father. He also said many of it, uh, uh, we all actually said, we all have experienced an oppressively patriarchal grip on life. Now, I, I wonder if he considers the word husband problematic because husbands, they form the patriarchy. 
And some have experienced abusive and oppressive husbands. So shall, shall we take our cues from culture and just rewrite John's vision? Should we rewrite all the passages that speak of God the husband? Or should the marriage of Jesus and his bride become some cultural civil union? Maybe we could make it a civil union in the book of Revelation instead of husband and wife. You know, I, I know I sound absurd. You're probably thinking this crazy. Get him off of that platform. What's he saying? It sounds absurd. But ask yourself, do you think you would have ever heard from a leader of a huge denomination of people who call themselves Christians. You think you would have ever heard that leader say, well, Father is problematic in the prayer, the very prayer that has been for centuries called the Our Father. I know we call it the Lord's Prayer, but Augustine of, uh, of Hippo in the fourth century called it the Our Father. For centuries it's been called that, but it's, well, it's just problematic. The word of God is truth. It's his word, not our word. The, the, the cultural pressures, though, they've affected the church, and it has affected how many receive and interpret God's word. And whether we know it or not, it turns the truth into a lie. Be it obvious, scripture twisting, which has occurred and continues to occur to justify things like uh, sexual immorality, homosexuality, or, or the redefinition of marriage, or the absence of hell, or God doesn't judge, or whatever, on and on we could go. Much of what's happened because of our, our current well, Western culture, what we live in, it's happened because the, the values of the culture, they're deeply, deeply, deeply self-centered. It's an all-about-me culture, the values, the customs, the traits, all about me. And what does that do to God's word? It can, it can influence us to equate God's word to being all about me. See, I'm uncomfortable with the word in the Bible. Well, let's just change it. Let's change it so it's better for me. I don't like a certain passage. It's kind of convicting. Sort of makes me feel guilty. Doesn't line up with the way I live my life. Can't we just change it? Let's modify it. You know, far be it from me to change and conform with the word of God. No, no, no. See, and that's kind of the prevalent attitude of some, even among professing Christians. Do we come to God on his terms? The service was open this morning and Cameron brought this great image from Isaiah chapter six. And he said, do we come to God on our terms? Or do we come to God on his terms? Is it his word or is it our word? The application of God's word can become 
all about what I think, what I feel, what I believe it should mean. And that's not the truth. It's not the truth of its actual meaning if I just impose like, hey, it's, it's got to be all about me. In Isaiah chapter 54, which I've referenced, God's word through the prophet Isaiah is to Israel. The chapter is to the nation, and it's all about restoration. They had been exiled. Jerusalem had been destroyed. No, this was going to be coming. This was, this was what was going to come. Isaiah had prophesied that. And, and this restoration was the, the, the prophecy of the after. And it speaks of God being the husband. The image is God the husband dealing with an unfaithful wife. But God spoke to the future about an opportunity for restoration. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 8 and 9, say this. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. That's God speaking about the, the unfaithful wife and how Jerusalem was going to fall. They were going to be, they were gonna be uh, taken captive to Babylon. That's what was going to happen. It did happen. And God's saying, listen, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Now the context of this passage, read the chapter. It's all about Israel, the nation, depicted as being unfaithful, the unfaithful wife, and God the husband, who had dealt with the unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of the nation. He was offering kindness. He was offering compassion. He was offering a pathway back to restoration. And now in a minute, in, in a, probably less than a minute, a very quick search online, I came up with dozens Dozens of devotions, dozens of studies that I'll, I'll put down into this sentence. This is what they were saying. Believer, believer, God will never be angry with you. You're a Christian. God will never rebuke you. Now, is that the truth? They picked this up from Isaiah 54. God will never be angry with you. God will never rebuke you. And, and that... That makes you, that makes self, the center of God's word, the center of application. It's all about something encouraging, fabulous, uplifting for me. That, that, that's what this is all about. That's what all these devotionals I found were all about. And now I'm not saying that we can't draw application, even positive application out of the word of God and out of this passage. But what is the passage about? What's the truth of it about? It's about a future and restoration for the nation. And how was that brought about? One word. Jesus. Jesus. This was brought about by Jesus. He is the Lord, your Redeemer. Now that was the word to the nation. And Jesus is that for the nation. And Jesus is that 
for each of us personally. That's true. So for personal application, now let's see Jesus. Let's look to Jesus. How has Jesus restored you? Did chains fall? You know, were there, uh, were bondages broken? Has Jesus restored you? And would he ever rebuke you? Because I got tons that say, no, that'll never happen. You're a Christian now. You believe. Oh, God will never, ever rebuke you. I read John chapter 3, the most quoted verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The very next line says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So I'm like, okay, maybe I'm getting at some application here. God's not going to condemn me. I have Jesus. Okay. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. So now we're moving in the application. No condemnation. And that's true as believers. You know, we're all going to stand before the very uh, throne of God, the judgment seat of God. And with Christ, with Jesus, as our righteousness, we will not be condemned. We will not be cast into outer darkness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and we will not receive God's anger. Jesus took that for us at the cross. There's some great application. But until that day, we're still here on this earth. We are still fallible people. And as we live as saints, as we live as saints of the church, striving to live for Jesus, endeavoring to be transformed and by the renewing of our mind, we may from time to time miss the mark. That does happen. As Christians, could there be times where the Lord might rebuke? Well, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews says, don't make light of God's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Hold on a second. I got tons of devotionals that says he'll never do that. But there it is in the New Testament. Don't lose heart when God disciplines you, when he rebukes you. Why? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So yes, our Father, one with Jesus, might discipline, might rebuke out of love out of love, to correct. When you read the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, there's seven churches mentioned there. This is the words of Jesus. Through John, who's having this great vision, the apostle John has this grand vision, the words of Jesus come to him. He's got a message for seven churches. And Jesus commends the churches he does, there are several he commends. But he also says, I have this against you, so repent. See, there's a little rebuke even in the, even in the commendation. Jesus says, hey, now hold on a second. I got this against you, please repent. God rebukes those he loves. 
So let's not take the word of God and turn it into some just fabulous, great application that's going to make me feel good because I lifted one phrase of scripture and I call it truth. It sounds great. It sounds really great and warm and wonderful to say, hey, God has sworn never to be angry with you and he'll never rebuke you. But take the whole context of the whole passage and look at the greater portion of God's word to isolate just a single phrase and then immediately make it into some personal application that's distorting the truth. It's a me-centered approach, me, me. And you know, reading God's word like that, it's kind of gotten ingrained in, in many. It's gotten ingrained because of the self-centered cultural values that just get completely smashed into us. There's a book by uh, E. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And there's a passage in this book about a seminary professor. And it's very interesting. It's about how culture has affected the reading of God's word. And I'll say Western culture, our culture here in the U.S. And I want to I share this passage with you. It says, Mark Allen Powell He's the professor. Mark Allen Powell had 12 students in a seminary class. And he had them read the parable of the prodigal son carefully from Luke's gospel. They had to then close their Bibles and retell the story as faithfully as possible to a partner. None of the 12 American seminary students mentioned the famine in Luke 15, 14 which precipitates the son's eventual return. Now, Powell found this omission interesting. So he organized a larger experiment in which he had 100 people read the story and retell it as accurately as possible to a partner. Only six, 6%, only six of the 100 participants mentioned the famine. The group was ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, and religiously diverse. The famine forgetters, as Powell calls them, had only one thing in common. They were from the United States. Later, Powell had the opportunity to try the experiment again, this time outside the United States. In St. Petersburg, Russia, He gathered 50 participants to read and retell the prodigal son story. This time, an overwhelming 42 of the 50 participants mentioned the famine. That's over 80%. Why? Just 70 years before, 670,000 people had died of starvation after a Nazi German siege of the capital city began a three-year famine. Famine was very much a part of the history and the imagination of the Russian participants in Powell's exercise. Based solely on cultural location, people from America and Russia disagreed about what they considered the crucial details of the story. Americans tend to treat the mention of the famine as an unnecessary plot device. I found that really interesting. We don't deal with famine. I don't know. 
How many here have ever been through a famine here in the U.S.? I mean, we live in, in the, uh, just the grain capital of the world. Our, our basket's overflowing. You know, we have every kind of produce you can imagine. Food is just, it's everywhere. We don't, we don't deal with famine. So American readers just kind of blow right over it. No, it's not really a big deal, though, is it? Because it really doesn't change the outcome of the passage. You know, but I was thinking, like, if father is problematic, father's not a big deal, right, in, in this passage either. I mean, we could change father to mother. Maybe it was the mother waiting for the son to return. Or maybe we could just change father to parent. The son who ran off and was going to return, the parent was waiting. We could say, we could stay, say that. So, so something as insignificant, we might think, as the famine's unimportant to us, we just gloss over it. What else would we just begin to gloss over and not see as important in God's word? Do, do, you, see the, do you see the point? It just was so interesting to me how, how your culture and your experience can drive how you read and take in God's word. If we were saying that maybe we could do that with the, the account of the prodigal son, what about other places in Scripture? I mean, could all the teaching we have in this country and our culture about evolution, think about it. Could that affect the creation account? Well, it sure could. It already has. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, we live in the culture that, that you know, says we should be hospitable, right? So Sodom and Gomorrah is not about homosexuality or sexual immorality or anything like that. It's all about hospitality and being inhospitable. Well, we could look to other things like I've talked about hell, it doesn't exist, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on and on how the truth, the truth of the word could be modified to fit, you know, the cultural values, the attitudes of the day. You know what? It's famine forgetting. This is, Powell, he coined this term. It's famine forgetting. You know, it's famine forgetting today and then what? Then what? Our father gets changed. Church, church, let's not be famine forgetters. Let's not be those people. Let's not make biblical application central to how we feel it should apply to us and, and our life specifically. Read the word. Read God's word, yes. And do your best. Do your best to consciously lay aside any uh, preconceptions, any presuppositions, any pretexts that you have. It's his word. It does not change. No, God's word stands above the ever-shifting and the ever-changing culture. No, read his word and ask God to reveal to you the truth and take in his truth. Instead of putting yourself at the center and isolating a single phrase and making that phrase all about you, put Jesus at the center. See, because the word of God is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. 
It's about Jesus. Jesus is the word incarnate. He is the word. Let him speak to you through his word. Call on the advocate we read about. Call on the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit to illuminate to you his word of truth. Then take in that truth, take in that meaning, and and you can begin to apply. Yes, you can apply. But get in the truth of it first. Then make the application in your life. Let us not be famine forgetters. Now let's pray. Let's stand and pray. And I, I want to pray. And you know what? I, I think... I think we should close with the Lord's Prayer. How about that? And, and when we say the Lord's Prayer, belt out, belt out our Father. Don't hold back. God is our Father. And I'm not ashamed to say that. He's not some parent in the... God is my Father, my Heavenly Father. He's your Heavenly Father. What's up with this problematic? It's not. Let's be people who stand on the truth of God's word. God, our Father, thank you for your word of truth. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that he came to be our righteousness and that we will one day stand before you, not condemned, but welcomed because of Christ and the blood of the cross, because he died for our sins. Let that truth never, ever escape us. And until then, God, with your hand, disciplines. Lord, may we receive it graciously. If we stray as your saints, Lord, lead us back. Lord, we would just invite your discipline and ask you to correct us. Your rebuke is not to harm us. It's out of love. It may be something we receive. God, help us to never be people who would be like the so-called famine forgetters. Help us to read your word and take it in in its entirety and what, what it, its truth really is. Father, I just pray that for every single person here. I pray for everyone listening online, God. May we come to you on your terms, through your word, not our terms, not our way, not our word. May that be, may it be. Bless us, God, bless us with that attitude. Help us to, help us to stand strong against influence that would push us to modify or alter your truth. God, I just pray for that strength. Be our strong tower in that. We thank you, we thank you, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. And now, now let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
All right. All right. Now, don't run out. If you need prayer, the altars are always open for you at the end of the service. And as you exit, as you exit, go left. Stop in the dining room. Let's take a minute to see each other and talk to each other and share a little bit of refreshment. I'll see you over there in just a few minutes.